You're listening to PolarPod from the Oxford University Polar Forum. Hello and welcome. My name is Sam Cornish and... My name is Roberta Wilkinson and we are your co-hosts for PolarPod, a podcast exploring big themes in polar research. And this is episode one of a mini-series all about carbon in the ground. And to kick us off on this journey, we're going to ask in this episode how it is that carbon gets into the ground in the first place and what keeps it there, or not as the case may be. But all of that is to come because to begin this episode, we need to take a little trip of the imagination to the northwest of Canada. We're in the small village of Mayo in Yukon. It's a warm summer's day and we head down to the river. At the water's edge, we get in a riverboat. And leave the community of Mayo and we need to drive upstream. Professor Chris Byrne from Carlton University, a geographer who's been working here for 40 years. And off we go up the river and we're going to go up the river for about two or three kilometres. And we'll get round the bend so we can't see the village anymore. And as we look up the river now, we're surrounded on both sides by spruce forest, with willow thickets on the left-hand bank. And just a little bit further on, as we go about another 400 metres up the river, we see that there is an area that has no vegetation left at all, where there is um, a river of mud coming off the land and into the, into the river. The river of mud is black. There are trees sticking, dead trees sticking out of it at all different angles. And As we look up that river of mud, we see about 300 metres away, we see uh, a a cliff. And the cliff, if we walk up to it, is composed almost entirely of mud and ice. And at this location where we go, we can hear the permafrost thawing and there's mud falling into the thawed mud that's at the bottom of this cliff. So there's a constant drip, drip or plop, plop of mud that falls down into the thawed ground. Drip, 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 plop, plop. As the climate warms, it is not just the air and the oceans that are warming, it is also the very ground beneath our feet. Drip, 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 plop, plop. And when that ground is frozen, as it is over much of Canada, Alaska and Siberia, it can thaw. As it does so, the ground can lose its integrity and the carbon that is kept locked up for millennia may escape as a greenhouse gas, leading to further climate warming. In a five-part mini-series, we'll be uncovering the big questions that surround carbon in the ground and its potential to impact the climate. We'll look at permafrost, microbes and rapid thaw processes. We'll even go back in time to the last ice age and learn about a possible climate solution involving large woolly herbivores. Stay with us. Because this is the first episode, I think we should take a moment to introduce ourselves and the way this mini-series is going to work. 
Sure. So I'm the coordinator of the Oxford University Polar Forum. And for my PhD, which I graduated from recently, I studied the Arctic Ocean. And PolarPod is a podcast exploring big themes in polar research. I'm really excited to learn more about this stuff because I'm an earth scientist too, a PhD student, and I study earthquakes. But my work is mainly done in much warmer parts of the world. So I'm, I'm looking forward to finding out more. So the way that we'll do this is I'll send Sam out each time to talk to experts and he'll come and report back and we'll discuss the stories that he's found. And the big theme that we're focusing on for this mini-series is carbon in the ground, particularly in perennially frozen ground or permafrost. So Sam, let's get started. Uh, why don't you tell me what exactly is carbon in the ground? Well, maybe we can start by saying what it isn't. Nowadays, people have heard about permafrost and methane and or wetlands and methane. I come across many people that think that the methane is actually stored in the ground and that that is released because of thaw, kind of like somehow a reservoir that is unstable. This is Luca Jongians. So, my name is Luca Jongians. Spell L-O-E-K-A. <laughs> it's just Luca, just like my name is Luca. I'm Susanna like, Vega. Uh, my name is Luca. I, I live, live on, on the, the second floor. floor. That one. That's the one. <laughs> so Luca's just finished her PhD in permafrost science from the Alfred Wegener Institute in Potsdam, Germany. And here she's telling us that this image of greenhouse gases trapped in permafrost like little bubbles waiting to escape is not what's going on. That's not the case because you have organic matter which is decomposed. And, and I think, yeah, that is an important point to to come across for people because it's yeah, it's, it's really often assumed that it's like a gas already in the soil. So when Luca says that the organic matter is being decomposed, she's referring to the fact that there are microbes in the soil that essentially eat this organic matter. And so that organic matter, that's things like plants or bits of animals or microbes that are all kind of buried in the yeah. soil. So like carbon rich stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the raw material of life, essentially, that ends up in the soil. So as the microbes consume this organic matter, they release greenhouse gases. Like carbon dioxide or methane, right? Right, exactly. And um, we'll, we'll talk about that distinction between the two later. But importantly, these are greenhouse gases which contribute to global warming. Um, and exactly. So how much greenhouse gas are we actually talking about here that, that these microbes could release? Well, a good place to start is to ask how much carbon there is in the ground. And so I put that question to Jeppe Christensen, a soil ecologist at the University of Oxford. And I'm uh, here in Oxford on a fellowship by the Karlsberg Foundation of, uh, from Denmark. When I asked him this, I kind of quite boldly said, oh, we know there's a lot of carbon in the ground, but how much is there? So it's funny how, if I can start somewhere else, it's funny that you say that, that we know that there is uh, a lot of carbon in the ground, because I'm not sure everyone knows. Jeppe was keen to point out that it's not widely appreciated just how much carbon is in the soil. At, at least it doesn't seem to be the focus of, you know, carbon markets and, and carbon sequestration and, 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 and nature-based solutions, you know, that, that all seems to be focused on, on, on forests, right? Uh, which is surprising as a soil scientist, because, you know, the soil science 101 is, is, is basically that uh, the soils are the, the major carbon store on, on the planet, right? At least of the active uh, cycling carbon. I think when Yepi says actively cycling carbon, he means what's not geologically stored, so what's not stored as rock. 
Um, but as an oceanographer, I, I want to pipe up here and say that the ocean also stores a lot of carbon and we should be grateful for that. Also for the amount that it's currently absorbing of our emissions each year, the ocean takes in around a quarter of what we emit. Oh, we've got a big oceans fan in the house here. Yeah, guilty. Okay, back, back to Yepe. Yeah, well, Ye- Yepe's about to help us understand this, the different scale of carbon storage in these different reservoirs by using a curious canine analogy in which the size of the dog represents the amount of carbon stored. Um, and, uh, and, to, and to give you a sense of, of size, right, you know, if you, if you imagine that the whole Amazon forest, right, is, is a, um, a West Highland white terrier, right? Dog breeds aren't really my strong suit. Okay. So West Highland white terrier, that's like... A Westie. The, a Westie. That's like the, mm. um, those little white uh, shaggy dogs, the cute ones. But crucially, quite small, I think. Exactly. Yeah, that's the main thing. Okay. <laughs> then the um, the permafrost would store the equivalent of a Grand Danois, right? Uh, of of carbon. Okay, I know this one. That's a Great Dane, right? A massive dog. That's a Great Dane. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. So I, I obviously had to make that comparison. Yeppe is Danish. So, so, so just to give you a sense of the size difference, because I, I think everyone has like an intuitive understanding of the Amazon being a very carbon dense place on Earth and, and and a very important carbon store, which is obvious, which which it is. Like I'm, I'm not trying to say it's not, but it's just important to understand that the vast majority of um, of the carbon is is not stored above ground on the, on this planet, stored below ground, and the permafrost region in the northern hemisphere is is um, storing about half of of the carbon in the soil globally, right? So so it's it's a huge reservoir. So can we get a bit more precise than our dog metaphor? Uh, can we put some numbers on this about how much carbon actually is stored inside permafrost? We can indeed. Um, I've seen a number of estimates in papers recently, um, but they seem to centre around 1,500 gigatons of carbon. And a gigaton is uh, a billion tonnes. So... 1,500 gigatons is 1,500 times 1,000 times 1,000 times 1,000 times 1,000 kilograms. Yes. So that's a lot of carbon. Yeah, it's a huge amount. And most of that is within the top three meters, and that's around 1,000 gigatons of carbon, so two-thirds. Okay. Yeah, but also these numbers are quite abstract and they're quite hard to get your head around. Um, So for a little bit of context... Our global annual emissions currently are around 10 gigatons of carbon per year. So in that top three metres of permafrost, there's the equivalent amount of carbon that the whole world would release and emit in 100 years. Yeah, I mean, that's a huge quantity, isn't it? Yeah, but but then how much of that carbon that is in that, that permafrost, how much of that will actually end up in the atmosphere? Well, that is kind of the, the golden question in all of this. But for a basic sense of scale, the IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, says that if we continue to emit in a business-as-usual sense, then permafrost could have released tens to one hundreds of gigatons of carbon as carbon dioxide and methane by 2100. So yes, that's getting towards those those big figures of one year to tens of years of, of our carbon emissions. So it's potentially a huge fraction. So, so we know it's going to be big. But it sounds like there's still quite a lot of uncertainty on how big. So there's a lot of potential for new science there and and a need for science and research. Yeah, there's a lot for scientists to understand. And we're going to be looking into some of those nascent questions over these five episodes. And I want us to begin on that kind of journey of understanding with visualising a voyage of another kind. And it's of a carbon atom. 
To begin with, this carbon atom is bonded to two oxygens. It's part of a CO2 molecule floating around in the air. Little does it know that its destination is the soil and will follow how it gets there. To begin us off on that journey, I just want you to imagine that you're that carbon atom, drifting along in the wind, between the boughs of a great oak tree, maybe over the heads of some unsuspecting picnickers, and onwards through the long grasses of a meadow. And uh, all of a sudden you've been uh, sucked into this stomach of, of, of a plant somewhere, right? And, uh, and then they convert you into some sort of chemical energy, right? So, so like a sugar of some sort. And, and then it can transport you somewhere into where it needs you the most. So that could be into building stem, or it could be into building leaves, uh, or it can transport you downstairs, so into the root system. So when leaves or stems fall onto the ground, they can add to this soil organic matter. But Yepi says that actually more important are the below ground parts, the roots because they're already in the soil and they also tend to be harder to decompose. But then, you know, microbes in, in the soil, if, if the conditions are right, they're extremely, they're extremely good at decomposing whatever sort of organic matter you throw at them. Unless conditions for decomposition are somehow um, not ideal, right? And this is key. Basically, you're only going to get organic matter accumulating in the soil if this microbial decomposition is slower than the rate that you're adding carbon to the soil. But we've just heard about how effective these microbes can be. So yeah. how that that microbial decomposition is actually really, really fast and, and really good at releasing carbon. Exactly, so. right? So Yepe is about to tell us how we need special conditions to slow these microbes down and allow carbon to build up in the soil. So you can have buildup of that if for some reason the decomposition is hampered. And, and that, could, that could happen primarily for, by, by three mechanisms, right? And in order to understand how these three mechanisms work, we need to return to our journey as a carbon atom into a plant. So we've gone in as a CO2 molecule, the plant has then turned us into a sugar and transported us down into the plant's roots. So at the beginning, when you're when you're still in a root or something, the plant has made you into quite a long chain. Is that right? So these chains, their connections have um, formed between carbon atoms. They've got other stuff on there like hydrogens hydrogen. and nitrogen and oxygen. Yeah, phosphorus. Yeah, as well. yeah. Um, but they form these long chains. So I'm I'm imagining like a really long piece of spaghetti yeah. or something like that. But it, but it's 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 more like organic matter is much much more complex than that actually uh-huh. like plant material is much more complex than that so it, you should rather imagine like a huge sort of uh, if if you boil that spaghetti and then you have like this mm. huge uh, you know matrix of spaghetti like carbon chains and a lot of much more simpler compounds as well all mixed in into these very sort of complex um, it's a ragu or something yeah, yeah, <laughs> or exactly. a bolognese yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Bol- bolognese probably is is is, is really good. <laughs> So we're imagining it, maybe. Nice. Yeah. Okay. And then the microbes come on and they, they attack the bolognese. Yeah. And they're breaking it, those spaghetti chains, into smaller bits. And every time that happens, they keep a bit for yeah. themselves. Exactly right. But another bit goes out as a gas. Yeah. Yeah. So if conditions are ideal, right? Uh, imagine like a. In, in a tropical rainforest, for instance, right, there's very, very little carbon sort of in the soil. Uh, the majority of it is just lying on the surface as litter, and there's not even a lot there because it's just been turned over so fast because of high humidity and high temperatures, right? So if you had those sorts of conditions all over the place, you know, that there wouldn't be a lot of buildup of, of, of carbon. Mm. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah so, so in the in the the tropics, we have these phenomenally productive rainforests, um, but the the bolognese of organic matter is readily eaten by yeah. by the microbes. Yeah. And so they they just go around doing their thing, and the soil can't build up that much carbon because it's all being chomped down by the microbes near yeah. the surface. Yeah, exactly right, near, near, near the surface. Um, but but then in the tropics as well, you also have these uh, huge wetlands, right? There's very different types of ecosystems also in the tropics. So you also have these, these uh, huge swamp areas, uh, both in South America, but particularly maybe known from uh, Southeast Asia, so Indonesia and um, Malaysia. So the first way that decomposition can be slowed down is through a lack of oxygen. So, so the first one, and, and maybe the most well-recognized one, is in, in wetlands, right, where you have oxygen depletion. So microbes just as um, as humans need oxygen to to breathe not not all of them so there are oxic or aerobic microbes that use oxygen and make carbon dioxide but there are also anoxic or anaerobic microbes that don't need oxygen and presumably those ones make methane yes that's right but yepe says that this anaerobic decomposition is quite a slow process so that can that can build up uh, huge layers of carbon in for instance in in wetlands uh, which is also a big sort of mechanism for carbon storage in the tropics for instance you have massive massive carbon storage in in wetlands down there so that's like putting a lid on your bolognese and keeping all the flies out <laughs> and keeping all the microbes out <laughs> yeah exactly right that, that well they're in there they're in there right but they're just mm, they, see, they, yeah. they just can't do they anything get slow they get sluggish yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and 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 the community the microbial community would, would shift, at least a different part of the community would be active, right? They, they tend to actually stay there for an incredibly long time, but just in like a dormant form. Yeah, so that's one way of building up huge carbon reservoirs in, in, in the soil is basically um, through oxygen depletion. But um, another way is, um, is what we know from our forests, uh, temperate latitudes, which is big layers of carbon building up uh, right on the soil surface due to acidity. So when the pH gets too low, that's also something that hampers the microbes. It's, it's important to know that it doesn't stop decomposition, right? So it, it doesn't stop, but it, it just becomes a lot slower. So why are they more acidic than the, the floors of these temperate forests? Jeppe told me that it's because of the leaf litter. Um, so pine needles and beech leaves, interestingly, um, are acidic. Um, so they make the, the topsoil and the, the leaf litter of those forests acidic. Ah, Okay. So in our bolognese analogy, the microbes, they're not a fan of adding balsamic vinegar to the, no. to the spaghetti. <laughs> oh, true. It turns them off. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And microbes is one thing. So maybe, maybe more important, actually, in those sorts of systems is something like earthworms, for instance. They, they don't like, they, they particularly do not like the balsamic vinegar, right? Because as soon as you get below something like pH 5 or something, like that, they, start, they, they, they start disappearing from the systems. And they're extremely important for, particularly for decomposing the litter. Uh, the little layer, so this buildup of of dead organic matter just on top of the soil surface. Okay, that's um, interesting. So, so, so we call that communition, which basically just means like chopping up the the plant material into into smaller pieces to increase the surface area, because that's really what's needed for the microbes to attack it. Millipedes is another important one. So, uh, for instance, in in North America, they used to have only millipedes, not uh, well, not only millipedes, but the millipedes used to be the most important one until the Europeans brought over the earthworms. Yeppe says that the Europeans brought crops across with them and soil and the earthworms kind of stowed away and got across the Atlantic with them. So that's really changing the, the systems fundamentally in, in North America now. So it's not just these, uh, the little tiny microbes that are um, 
digesting or decomposing this matter it's actually there's a big role for these bigger creatures that are like chomping on them and chopping them up almost like they're coming along with scissors Mm. like chopping up the leaves and getting them into smaller pieces like ready for the microbes to have their dinner they're like the waiters or maybe waiters bringing along the little (laughs) portions like microbes oh d'oeuvres or whatever they're called i can't say that word but um no, I was thinking it's more like your parents when you're a kid, like chopping up your food for you into little chunks because you're only little, so you can't you can't get it. In. Yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah, and now we know the scientific word for it. Oh yeah, was it communition? Communition. That's what he said. Okay. We're thinking about conditions limiting the decomposition of carbon. So we're, we're thinking about in this case um, conditions limiting how quickly our plate of bolognese, which is this mass of like intertwined carbon chains, is being eaten by microbes. And so we said, but we, you know, we can we can put a lid on it and prevent oxygen getting in there. We can put vinegar on it. So Roberta, I think a better food analogy here would be pickling, but no one pickles bolognese, so that's why I didn't say it. <laughs> Um, but we can also put it in the fridge. Yeah, that's exactly the same thing as we do when we freeze or, or at least cool our um, our food, right? Okay, so presumably this is permafrost. Yes. So low temperatures is also something that inhibits decomposition. And that's because respiration tend to have more of an exponential relationship with temperature, whereas um, photosynthesis has uh, more of a linear relationship. So, uh, so at lower lower temperatures, actually the, the, the respiration is lower than the photosynthesis. So remember that photosynthesis, by helping to build plants and organic matter, is adding to the carbon that's in the ground, whereas respiration is using that carbon up and releasing it again as CO2. And when it's very cold, um, that slows down both of these processes, but it slows down the process of respiration more, and that allows carbon to be kind of trapped in the ground, right? Yes, yeah, spot on. So you have like a net gain, although it's they're both extremely small. Just that that small little margin just builds up over over um, hundreds and, and and thousands of years. Um, so it can actually build up these incredibly huge uh, carbon stores. Okay, so the carbon is stored well in the soil if there's low oxygen, if there's acidity, or if it's cold. Yeah, those are the three factors that will slow down this decomposition. And the third one, the the coldness, that brings us on to considering permafrost. So that's why we're so worried about permafrost thawing. If it thaws, then these, these hungry microbes, they'll start to get to work again, eating their organic matter, releasing carbon as greenhouse gases, and, and that's bad. Right, yeah. So the, the permafrost is like the freezer in this case. Yeah. And so we already said earlier on that there was a a vast amount of carbon in in the permafrost. And I think now it's time for us to find out a bit more about permafrost itself. And that is exactly what we're going to be doing in the next episode. So we'll be bringing Chris Byrne back in and benefiting from his expertise as we endeavour to learn a bit more about permafrost itself and the way that it's responding to climate change. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe or even better, leave us a rating or a comment. And finally, just before we let you go, we at the Polar Forum are organising a project called the Arctic Horizon Scan 2022. It's a global collaborative project to shape the Arctic research agenda by bringing people together from different disciplines and different cultures to identify what the priorities for Arctic research should be over the next decade, such that research can help serve the needs of the future. 
If you're interested, there's a bunch of ways for you to get involved, whether it's by filling in our online survey or actually coming to Oxford to participate in the workshop that we're hosting in September. So please check out our website. It's polar.ox.ac.uk slash horizon. polar.ox.ac.uk slash horizon. PolarPod comes to you from the Oxford University Polar Forum. It's co-hosted by Sam Cornish and me, Roberta Wilkinson. Reporting, production and original music by Sam Cornish and sound design by Jahad Sahib.